Brewstone, <laughs> and uh, he's going to do a great job this morning. So let's hear him. Give him a hand. Thank you, thank you. Um, man, let's give it up one more time for the worship team this morning, y'all. That was, that, was, that was a blessing, man. Uh, thank you, Josh, for ushering us into the throne room, man. We really appreciate that. Uh, I'm sitting over here uh, with my wife and my uh, oldest daughter, man, and, and just hearing graves into gardens, man, and being overcome with emotion, right? Just remembering uh, man, just the path that God has brought me down and, and, and how he has transformed my life and uh, how he's transformed my wife's life and my desire for him to transform my kid's life. And I'm like, man, God, you've done it for me and you've done it for so many others. And I know you can do it for my offspring. And I was praying uh, to that end. Man, what a beautiful, beautiful song. Thank you, uh, Josh. So those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Jared Cole. I am on staff over at Cornerstone Church over across the way. I've been here a couple times, man, and I love coming over here to Stonebridge, man. I don't know if y'all know this, but like this, this is like one of my favorite places to be in the greater Iowa area, man. Stonebridge, you guys welcome me. You guys are like family. I've been here a handful of times, man, and, and you guys, your pastor, your elders, you guys just welcome me every single time I come here, my family as well, and we are so, so grateful. And so I've got a lot to say and don't have a lot of time to say it, and so we are in the book of Romans. We're going to uh, finish out this series here really soon. We're finally in the last chapter, chapter 16, uh, and we're going to begin right there in, in, in verse 1. Uh, I believe we're going to break this down into a couple weeks, so you have one more week in Romans 16, but here I'm going to kick it off. And before I do, I, mean, I just want to give an overview of where we are in Romans already, right? The, the book of Romans is a beautiful, beautiful book. It's an amazing book. We can go to the book of Romans and we can see like all of our theological doctrine on display are everything pertaining to salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification is all there. The spiritual life, Romans 8, is jam-packed. And then we get to the second half of Romans, and it talks about this division in the church between Jew and Gentile and all these things that are coming up in that church based on kosher laws, what to eat, how to operate, what to do and what not to do. And there's division, there's conflict, and Paul is writing to this church and saying, yo, keep Secondary matters, secondary matters, and keep primary matters, primary matters. And this will be an essential theme that Paul writes in most of his epistles to these churches that he's writing to. And so we see when we come to chapter 16, we have to understand how this ties into the, the greater elements of this letter. Uh, and as you guys are looking at this, you see it's, it's, it's a list of names. It's a greeting right here. Paul is now finally getting this letter to the church in Rome, and he's greeting these people here. Uh, you would think he would know these people by how many people he's listing, but he actually hasn't even been to the church in Rome yet. But what scholars think is that he's trying to reach out to this church in Rome. He's in Corinth right now writing this letter, about to send this letter to Rome. And what he wants to do is further his mission on into Europe and get to Spain. And to do that, he wants to lay the foundation here with this church and create ties. And so what we see in this church is that there is a, a, a load of diversity in this church in Rome. There's gender diversity. There's ethnic diversity. There's socioeconomic diversity. And as we look in our scriptures right now in Romans 16, verse 1, we're actually going to see this. I'm going to read these first 16 verses here. It says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, 
a servant of the church in Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in the way of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who was approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also in his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Okay, now take a deep breath. <laughs> okay? So I wanted to read that whole thing from 1 to 16 for, well, many reasons, but one reason for sure, so that you can see that you guys aren't the only ones that struggle <laughs> with reading the names in the Bible, right? This is, this is common. Uh, when you read a part of this passage, it reads like a genealogy. Is that on my end? It reads like a genealogy, which is everybody's favorite part of Scripture, right? But I remember when I was getting into genealogies, when I was first reading the Scriptures, I would literally like skip over the genealogies. I would skip over these types of greetings. And really any other part of the Scripture that had anything to do with the list of names, but as you grow in your faith and you mature in your faith and you start to read these sorts of things, you actually tend to find value in important things in these lists of names. Maybe I can tell you like this. I am from Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, I grew up a Kansas City Royals fan. Uh, the Royals are down there. The Chiefs are down there. Uh, I'm an 80s baby, and so I grew up through the 90s, right? And so any baseball fans in here, you guys know that the 90s was a terrible, terrible time for the Royals, right? If you guys know that, around 97, 98, I was about 9 or 10 years old, and I could remember always going to Kauffman Stadium. And going to Kauffman Stadium was a phenomenal experience, but we were going to just watch a terrible, terrible team. I remember you could actually take a bag of pop tabs, you know, a couple pounds or so, go to the game. You can get tickets to get in the game. You didn't even need any money. And so we would save up our money, we'd go into the game, and we'd get, like, lemonade, right? The, the lemonade man was the, was the coming attraction at Kauffman Stadium. If you guys have ever been there, lemonade, 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 right? And it goes, woo! If you've ever been there, it's, it's amazing. But one of the things at Kauffman Stadium that you would do is you would be able to go down onto the field, and you could run the bases at the end of some of these games. And this was amazing for us as kids, right? Because we longed to be down there on the field. We longed to be down there in the action. And we actually got a chance to do that every once in a while. And so we'd run the bases and run the bases. And sometimes my dad would go to the gift shop and we'd get a baseball, right? 
we'd get the baseball, we'd take it over to the dugout, and we would give the ball to the players, and there would be some of the star players in the dugout. And you being that close, you're just like, man, I can't believe this dude is here. I can't believe this. I can touch him. I can shake his hand. He gave me a hug, man, like Mike Sweeney, right? Jermaine Dye. I don't know if you guys remember these names, but Johnny Damon, Jeremy Giambi, right? And they're taking the ball. They're passing around. They got their pen, and they're signing the names on this ball. And I take that ball and I go home, I put it in this case, I put it on top of my dresser, and I just like, every time my friends come over, hey, look at my baseball. I was at the Royals game, and look at these names I got on this ball. Oh, you got Giambi's autograph. I didn't get his last time I was there. Oh, you got, you got his too? Wow, that's amazing. But what didn't I do when I went and got those autographs? I didn't get the, the lesser guys' names, right? I didn't get, I don't even know these guys' names. I had to look these up on Google when I was doing this sermon, but Pat Rapp played for the Royals in 1998. Anybody know his name? No, me either. Scott Service, anybody know Scott Service's name played for the Royals in 1998? I don't know his name either. But when we look at the list of names in the Bibles, when we look at the genealogies and these greetings and we see these names, like God does things entirely different. We give honor to those who deserve honor, but God gives honor to those who don't have honor. He gives honor to people like me. He gives honor to people like you. He says, yo, I give honor where there isn't honor. This tells us something about our Savior. You can look at the genealogy in Matthew 1 when Matthew opens up and he's talking about the genealogy of Jesus. And in here we get women like Rahab, who was a prostitute. We get women like Ruth who was a Gentile, right? We give a woman like Tamar, who in Genesis convinced her father-in-law, because she couldn't have any children, to have children with her. And these women are listed in this genealogy of Jesus. And if you're a Jew in that time period, you're looking at this and you're saying like, yo, why are you putting these less honorable people in this genealogy? And Jesus says, because I turned graves into gardens. I give honor to the dishonorable. And the same thing is true for this greeting in Romans 16. Listen, this is Paul, a Jewish man, writing a Jewish document to this Jewish church, claiming the Jewish Messiah has come to be the Savior of the world, and yet the people that he's writing the greeting to and the people that he's saying, yo, send my love to them, greet them for me, they're predominantly Gentile. This is radical. And these lists of names often add a countercultural credibility to the message of the scriptures and gives insight into what the author wants to communicate and what Jesus came to do. This is exactly what we're saying. Give honor to this dishonorable and make the weak strong. This list of names has a lot of implications, but one in particular that I want to point out today, and the one that's going to be our main point uh, for the rest of the time, is this. Justification by faith leads to fellowship in faith. Justification by faith should lead to fellowship by faith. So let me break this down for us a little bit. We know what justification is, right? Justification by faith is the effect of the cross made tangible in our lives, right? What Christ accomplished on Calvary as he bore his cross down that road and he climbed that hill to his execution and he died on that cross, what he did was save all of humanity. He purchased salvation for all. 
there's a couple things about this salvation. This salvation cannot be won, and nor can it be lost, but it has to be received, and it has to be believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's a gift. It's a gift that must be believed and received by faith. But then, not only justification by faith, but the book of Romans also ushers into this idea of fellowship by faith. And we see it made tangible in this list of greetings to the church. And fellowship by faith can be best understood by what it is not. Okay? Fellowship by faith is the opposite of fellowship by preference. If you're taking notes, that's a good thing to write down. Fellowship by faith is the opposite of fellowship by preference. When we operate in fellowship by faith, we get unity. We get diversity. We get wholeness. We get patience. But when we operate in unity by, uh, when we operate in unity by preference, we get division and homogeneity and brokenness and restlessness. And we know this, right? We get distance. If, if, you're, if you're married in the room, I'm married myself. We know this, right? When you're operating in fellowship by faith, things in the home are hitting on all cylinders, right? There's time spent with one another. There's things that are slowed down. Communication is on point, right? Fellas, the trash is getting taken out without you having to get told to take it out, right? And ladies, you're, you're receiving compliments, right? There's, your husband comes home and he says, yo, take the evening off, take the morning off, I'll be home with the kids, right? This is, this is kind of what fellowship by faith looks like. There's a mutual service and needs are getting met. And interpersonal fellowship by faith is selfless. If you're not married, it's harder than it sounds, but what about if you have kids? Fellowship by faith means parents, you're not as impatient and teenagers, you're not as snappy. When we operate according to our preferences, things can get off track. But when we operate by faith, there can be harmony. One of the ways in the text that we see fellowship by faith is right here at the beginning, right? Look at verse 1 with me again. It says this. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So now commending women during Paul's day was already a radical idea, but to commend women in prominent leadership and authority and then have the audacity to document it as he does here, it would have been unheard of or at least extremely rare. You see, Phoebe was a member of the church there in Corinth where Paul is writing this letter. And not only was she a member, but she was also a deacon at that church. The word servant that we see here in verse 1 is translated from the word that we get deacon. The justification by faith that Paul is talking about here in the book of Romans leads to the possibility of the fellowship that we see right here in Romans 16. It's completely countercultural. But when you're able to see the justification by faith that makes us all equal in the eyes of God, you can do things like this that seem radical to the culture. Not only do we see Phoebe as a leading woman in ministry here, but we see an ode to Paul's old friend Priscilla. Do you remember her? Priscilla and Aquila, we find them in the book of Acts. The couple Priscilla and Aquila, when listed in the scripture, are often listed in order of importance or prominence. 
contrary to what you would think, the man should be the more prominent and important person listed in the scripture, but Priscilla is always listed first. This is done on purpose. It's telling us something about this couple. And if that doesn't make it more countercultural for you, here's the thing, okay, listen. Phoebe and Priscilla, maybe the sheer number, Phoebe and Priscilla are actually only two of the women that Paul talks about in this one passage alone. Two of ten. He admonishes eight women. The others were Mary, Junia, Tryphena, Traposa, Persis, the mother of Rufus, Julia, and the sister of Nerus. For Paul, fellowship by faith meant a countercultural view on how to do community and how to view one another. Women who would have been considered a less honorable people in this time period were treated among the most honorable. And not only did he do this for the women, but he also did this for the Gentiles. Out of the 26 people listed in this greeting, only five of them are Jews, Priscilla and Aquila, Andronicus and Junia and their couples, and then Herodian. The rest of these people are Gentiles. Paul is making an outrageous claim in this one greeting. It seems like Paul was trying to make a statement. Is he going to let up yet? No, I don't think so. He's not even done. So he not only greets the women, he not only greets the Gentiles, but then he goes as far to admonish the slaves. Verse 10 and 11, he says, greet those who belong to the house of Aristobulus and greet those who belong to the house of Narcissus. Scholars say that these people that he's saying greet these people who belong to this house are not just people who are intimate, close family to these men, but they're actually servants in that home. People who otherwise would have been deemed unnecessary to even greet, to even speak to, to even look at. And here Paul in the document of the book of life is saying, greet these individuals. He gives honor to the dishonorable. Paul could have easily left them out, but he intentionally includes them. The question is, why? What is Paul trying to do? You see, an ancient and common Jewish prayer that the Jewish men would pray is that they would say something like this. Thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. You see, what Paul was doing in this greeting was, was turning the world upside down as they knew it. He went into the, the diversity through gender, went through the diversity through socioeconomic status, and went through the diversity through ethnicity and said, yo, I'm going to turn the world upside down with this letter. And he continues to do so, and he'll do it in Ephesians, he'll do it in Colossians, he'll do it in the letter to the Corinthians, and so forth. What Paul is doing is setting the tone for proper Christian fellowships. For the rest of the time, here's what I want to do. I want to highlight a couple marks of Christian fellowship that this list of greetings show are important to Paul. The first one is service, and the second one is unity in diversity. For the first one, faithful fellowship is servant-led. We see that the first distinction that marks Phoebe is servant and we see listed throughout the greeting that he says, yo, this individual, he worked for the Lord. She worked for the Lord. She was a faithful worker. She worked alongside me. Service 
is a characteristic of the Christian, and therefore it should be a characteristic of Christian fellowship. One of the greatest vices in life that finds itself in a trifecta with money and sex in our culture is power. Power is the opposite of service. Power says, serve me. It says, work for me. This is mine. You're in my way or you're holding us back. And power works in a funny way because even if you're not saying these things, you can think these things and you can operate in this way. Right? Maybe you're thinking them. Maybe they're not your words coming out your mouth, but the things that drive you, the things that drive your motives, they're the principles behind why you do what you do. Power operates as the operating system for secular fellowship. Have you ever been seduced into competing and vying for power and influence? No, just, just me. <laughs> Well, let me ask you in a more or less direct way, right? Have you ever been in a room or seen on television where people are, are vying for power and influence and authority? One of the shows that my wife and I like to watch is Survivor. We love Survivor, right? And any of those kind of uh, reality TV shows, uh, they're amazing. They're, they're filled with games. They're filled with fun. They're filled with competition. And in these games, right, you see people who are thirsty for power, they would do literally anything for power. They would, they would steal. They would lie. They would cheat. Right? They would backstab. They're going to the council, and they're doing anything and everything they can not to get voted off the booth. Right? They would do literally anything, anything to gain that power to remain in the game. And this is the same power that the world often calls us to power at any cost. But if the world calls you to power, then we have to ask the question, what does Christ call us to? When Christ calls us to service, what do you do when you realize you're the most powerful person in the room? And you may sit here and you may think, I'm not, I don't have any power. I'm only a kid or I have a boss. I don't have any power. But there is and there will be opportunities when you walk into the room and you will be the most powerful person in the room. And the question is that when you walk into that room and that is you, what do you do with that power? Christian fellowship says that you give it away. This is what Jesus says. He says the greatest among us must serve. The second point is unity and diversity. Faithful fellowship is not determined along lines of affinity. One of the greatest obstacles to faithful fellowship is our inability and our lack of desire to have cross-cultural relationships. In most of Paul's letters in the New Testament, he is trying to get diverse communities of faith, mainly across Jew and Gentile lines, to have right fellowship with one another. Derwin Gray, one of my mentors, he's a pastor over on the East Coast, he says this, that research shows that homogeneous churches, and homogeneous is just a, a fancy word for the same, right? Churches that are made up of one ethnic group, churches that are made up of one socioeconomic group. He says that homogeneous churches promote political division, economic division, and racist attitudes. Whenever we stay stuck in silos of ignorance, we perpetuate those ignorances. And so here's the question I have for you. If you were to take inventory of your top five people, the top five groups of people you hang out with, how much diversity would be there? You see, diversity has grown in our culture predominantly in the last 
10, 12 years or so to be a buzzword. However, before it was an American ideal, it was a biblical ideal. The funny thing is that everything that the world has, the church always wants to look at and scoff, even the good things, and diversity is not missed here. A critical eye looks at the ambitions of diversity and says, oh, you're being too idealistic. It's too idealistic to think that people across such drastic differences can actually come together. But do you know what that's actually saying? That's actually telling a lie about the God that we serve. When we're telling the God that we serve that the differences that you and I see among us right here, whether it be ethnic, race, socioeconomic, gender, we're saying those things are bigger than what he's actually already bridged together. We're telling a lie about God. He's looking at these divisions here on earth, and he's saying those are small potatoes compared to what I've done already. I've bridged the gap between destruction and safety. I've bridged the gap between lost and found. I've bridged the gap between Jew and Gentile, right? Eternal damnation and eternal salvation. I have bridged those gaps. And so the ones that you are looking at here in the face, these are small potatoes, And when we call these idealistic and we say there's no way that we can bridge these gaps, there's no way I could have them come into my house, there's no way I could have my kids go to their school, we're telling a lie about the God that we serve. One of my favorite movie series is The Avengers. Uh, I love The Avengers. It's an amazing series. I know there's got to be some fans in here as well, right? But here's the thing, man. We will watch the Avengers, and no matter how bad it gets in that movie, we never get to a point where it's like, oh, Captain America's not going to get it done. <laughs> you know, Tony Stark's not going to get it done. There's, there's some, we're always on the edge of our seat holding on, thinking with, with anticipation that, yo, the Avengers are always going to come back, and they're going to do it. You guys remember Infinity War? <laughs> I just watched Infinity War recently, and, and, and that movie ends, and the Avengers are down bad, right? Captain America is down bad. Tony Stark is nowhere to be found. Black Widow and Hawkeye, they don't even have any real superpowers, right? But we're still waiting on Endgame to come, and when Endgame comes, we're still on the edge of our seats thinking, like, they're going to get it done. The Avengers are going to come around, and they're going to get it done, and really all Thanos has to do is what? Snap his fingers, As soon as Thanos snaps his fingers, it's over. And yet we sit on the edge of our seat watching the Avengers thinking, oh, for sure. For sure they're going to come around and get it done. We don't have that same hope and faith in the God of the universe to come around and bridge the gaps across the differences that we see with our own two eyes. Do you think Paul was concerned about the idealism and the implications of the gospel? I don't think so. Galatians, 1 Colossians, or 1 Corinthians, Colossians, uh, no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. He says these in all three of these things. This isn't some colorblind ideology or theology. This is, this, is, this is appreciation. This is saying these things don't go away, but under the banner of Christ, they're able to come together in unity and perfect harmony. And if you're anything like me, you see this kind of language and you get hyped and you're like, yeah, Paul, diversity. But wisdom tells us this, that we have to be careful because we can have these thoughts that all we have to do is become more diverse. 
you know, let's join forces with the neighboring uh, minority church in town. Or maybe we just need to move our church or plant a church in a, in a more diverse area. Or maybe we need to hire somebody. Yeah, let's hire somebody. But if this is where a line of thinking goes first, we are entirely missing the point. We have to be careful lest we make diversity the goal. Because diversity is not the goal. The gospel is. And so we need a robust understanding of the gospel. Richard Viotis says this, that the gospel is not just this individualistic message that when you die, you go to heaven. It's, it's, it's not even primarily that. He says the good news of the gospel is, one, this is my favorite, Jesus is Lord. Creation is being renewed. And three, it's my second favorite, in his name, a new forgiven and forgiving family is created. That is the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, creation is being renewed, and in his name, a new forgiven and forgiving family is being created. Y'all, that's reconciliation and redemption. This is the gospel. When we have a high and holistic and robust view of the gospel, it may not change the demographics of your city. It may not change the demographics of your worship place. It may not even change the demographics of your neighborhood. But what it could do is maybe change who comes into your house and sits at your dinner table. Last week, Matt talked about his youth leader, uh, Scott, from back home. And he was saying how much Scott meant to him. Uh, and, and, you know, I was listening to that message, and I was like, this is, this is amazing. Because he was saying that when he was young and he was in church, he was, he was being led by Scott. Youth group, Bible studies, all that kind of stuff. But you know what Matt said? He said he learned more about following Jesus by sitting at his dinner table than he did by any service that he went to on a Wednesday night. If that's true about somebody that you're growing up with and who you have a whole bunch in common with, what I believe Paul would say is that how much more so with those who are different from you? Diversity isn't the goal. It's, it's not the end, right? But it makes a terrible end. But it makes a great means, a means to which believing in the gospel gets us, right, to a new, united, just, and forgiving family. In some sense, this is what made the early Christians Christians. Acts 11, right after the persecution of Stephen, Stephen gets stoned and the Jews disperse. Luke records that the Jews were persistent and they kept sharing the gospel, but most of them only kept going to more Jews. And there was some, there was a remnant that said they were going to take the gospel to the Gentiles and they went to Antioch in Jerusalem. And it was there. Barnabas went there to see this church and Barnabas saw that there were Jew and Gentile together, different ethnicities. And he was like, yo, I got to go get Paul. Paul's got to come see this. He goes to Tarsus, comes back down to Antioch. And he's like, Paul, look. Paul and Barnabas stayed there for a year teaching, discipling in that church. And it was there, it says in Acts 11, that the disciples were first called Christians. The message had been going forth. Pentecost had already happened. Jesus had already been raised. And it wasn't until 11 chapters into Acts where we first see the word Christian. And why? It wasn't only because the gospel was being told. It wasn't only because people were saying, oh, there's a, there's a risen Messiah. It was because of the community that was created. It was because of the new family 
that the risen Christ inaugurates, tearing down the dividing wall of hostility, bridging together gaps that were once far apart. This is the work of the gospel. Christ is active and working. What diversity shows is that Jesus Christ and the reconciling power of the cross is still doing its job. It turns enemies into friends. And as I close, I want to ask the worship team to come up. One of the things that we've done as Christians um, is we've tried to create church, right, uh, with good intention in mind. And one of the things in the last 60, 70 years that we've done was create this thing called the homogeneous unit principle. Donald McGavern, he was a missionary in, uh, in India, and he found out that uh, people tend to come to Christ easiest and fastest when there's less barriers to cross. When there's less barriers to cross. The one thing that Donald McGavin was trying to do was erase the very thing that actually the scripture says makes Christians Christians. He's saying, let's take away the differences. Let's take away the hardship. Let's take away the difficulty to actually come together in community, and then people will actually begin to come to Christ. I have a word, and I think Paul would say have this same word, is that faithful fellowship is not built among affinity. Faithful fellowship is built among diversity. Bill Hybels, who was the lead pastor of this church called Willow Creek in a suburb of Chicago, he took this homogeneous unit principle from Donald McGavern and he turned it into this church growth idea, this church growth movement. In order to, to, to create a church, in order for a church to grow the fastest and to create more disciples, take away all the barriers, identify your target group, go for that group, who's your church for? <laughs> And then you get the leadership and you say, hey, this leadership knows who these people are and they know who these, what these people like. And you tailor a service, you tailor the sermon, you tailor your ideas around things that get these people into the seats. Noble, but harmful. We can press into faithful fellowship. I think Jesus calls us into faithful fellowship. Paul talks about faithful fellowship. The book of Acts shows us faithful fellowship. And this fellowship is one, not, a, not where we are bridged together because of affinity, but because we are bridged together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the blood of Jesus Christ works the most powerfully across differences. We can press into fellow faithfulship with one another because Jesus first pressed into fellow faithfulship with us. It was him who was high lifted up on his throne and it was him who saw us far away from him. 
There's not a single person in this room who turned to Jesus and ran to him on his own accord, but he ran us down. Yet while we were still sinners, active and moving against the will of God, what if the Holy Trinity was, was, was standing in heaven and they were looking at the events outside of time unfold and they saw men falling into sin and sin and sin and Jesus said, ah, it's, it's too idealistic, man. I, I don't think these people are going to turn. I won't go. He didn't do that. He pressed in because we have Jesus as the evidence that he pressed in, then we can also press in. Church, uh, pray with me to that end. Jesus. We love you. We are grateful for the work on the cross that you've done. We are thankful for the the life that you lived. We're thankful for the pain that you endured. We're thankful for your tenacity your endurance to pursue and continue to pursue with people like us who are still often actively against you, stuck in a sinful nature who should be divided from you for eternity, Lord. But yet you saw it fit to come down here and reconcile to us. You saw it fit to sit in our mess with us, take our mess on you so that we can be seen as holy, righteous, and blameless. And Lord, I want us to see that because we have this, 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 this evidence in you, we have this example in you, and you, you didn't go and leave us alone. You left us the Spirit, and the Spirit indwells in us, and I believe the Spirit calls us to take these steps as well, to take the steps in the places that we won't go to put our ears to things that we don't want to hear, to put our hands to things that we don't want to touch, to stand in places that we feel like we shouldn't be standing. Lord, if we want to see the power of the gospel, if we want to see the power of you, we have to go to places that you've gone. Lord, you've been there. We don't have to fear. Lord, fill us with humility and fill us with boldness to stand in the gap as you have stood in the gap. We pray these things in your name.